You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Let me share something personal to start. I do not like Costco at all. Is anybody with me on not liking Costco? All right. Kind of get an amen, brother. Yeah. That's my uh, Hulk Hogan preacher voice right there. Uh, I don't like going to Costco. Here's why I don't like Costco. I'm going to rant about Costco for a little bit to start. So please allow me to do this. And it starts way back, way, way back through time, going into the car. And this is personal because we, our house is all the way down Blue Lakes from Costco. That's not Costco's fault, but whatever. It still makes me not like Costco. And so we have to go all the way down Blue Lakes to get to Costco. And at certain times of the day, that can be like a half an hour just to get there. And so then it takes you a half hour to go down the road to Costco. You get in there, and the parking lot is terrible, right? It's the, like the most popular store in Twin Falls. The parking lot is tiny. It's, like, it's smaller than the Kmart parking lot. No one goes to Kmart. So then you have to park way over by like C-3PO or whatever place is called and walk all the way to the door, or by that McDonald's. You know, it's a long walk. And then you get to the door, and you see the sign on your right that says the hours that Costco operates. And weekdays, on what is it, like 8 or 9 or something? Saturdays, when does Costco close? It's some ungodly hour, like 5, 6, 5 o'clock on a Saturday. Come on, come on, Costco. Hey, when do they close on a Sunday? 5? Come on, Costco. Hey, I want to go... Saturday evening to Costco. So there's that. And then you go in there and we have kids. I have a two-year-old and a little baby right there. And it's hard to take our, our two-year-old Nora into a store. But what makes it easy is when they have those carts that have steering wheels, like race cars, like they have at Albertsons. Hey, those are awesome because then she thinks she's driving around the store. And we can be there for hours and it's just fine. Target has those. So good job, Albertsons and Target. Costco, no. They just have the regular boring carts. She doesn't like riding in those as much as the steering wheel cart. So then there's that. Then you go through the door. Now, I'm going to go on a while here, so keep, keep, keep with me. I'm, I'm letting a lot out. It's very therapeutic. And uh, you go in the door, and you have to show them your membership card just to get in. But then you need to use the membership card to buy anything. So why can't they just let you walk in? And they treat you like it's some VIP lounge or something. you got to show them your card to get in. And so you're in the store after you show them your card with a shopping cart with no steering wheel, so the kids are going crazy. They probably don't have exactly what you're looking for because it's kind of luck on what they have in stock. Like, they never have the big boxes of brown rice, just white rice. Come on, Costco. And then you could buy all your stuff, and you go to the uh, to checkout, and that takes forever. And probably not that long, but again, we have two little kids, and it's even busier than Walmart, and they don't have that many cashiers open. So you're waiting in line a long time. And then to buy your stuff, you have to show them your card again. They have to scan that. And then you can't even pay for your stuff with a credit card. You need 
a debit card or cash to pay for your stuff. Come on, Costco. What's up with that? And then you see when you're checking out the hot dog and soda, $1.50. Oh, that sounds fun. But they only accept cash. Come on, Costco. And what is it, 1960? You can only pay cash at the hot dog place. And then finally on your way out, you have to have your card examined like you're a criminal trying to leave their store. And they check your receipt and then you can go. Okay, so there's a trip to Costco. That's why I don't like Costco. But Costco has some things that I need. Like we could get, we, we eat a lot of chicken and we could get the regular size chicken from any store, but it's much more cost effective to get it at Costco and to get the big bag of chicken so you, you don't have to go to the store like every two days. So there's some stuff like that that you need to get at Costco. And like I said, I went on a long time ago about Costco Maybe you were thinking this. I was thinking this as I was even saying it. Come on now. Costco's not that bad. Walmart's maybe worse. right? They don't have the great... Well, actually, they do have a good parking. It's a huge parking lot. But, I mean, it's dirty in there. You have to wait a long time in line. But here's the big difference to me besides Walmart and Costco and why I'm very forgiving about Walmart compared to Costco is for Costco, you have to pay just to get in the door. And so then I have a higher level of expectation for Costco, because I can't even go in the store and look around unless I've paid the membership fee. So Walmart can be as dirty and disgusting as whatever. I still I like going to Walmart because you can just go in and you don't have to pay. You're not treated like a criminal. But there's some things that you need from Costco. So you got to pay the fee. You got to pay the monthly fee. What is it like five bucks? It's not very much. But Joe is the expert on Costco. Do you know? Four bucks, forty bucks a year. It's not much, but still principle. Okay, I'm mad about the principle. Hey, now, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does Costco have to do with Jesus? Hey, absolutely nothing. No. Here's, here's, where, here's where I'm going with this. Um, as Christians, we often seek things from God without seeking God first. Hey, we seek things from God, like, God, fix my marriage. You know, make my business successful. Heal me. Save my family members. Make me happy. Take away my addiction. And we seek those things from God oftentimes without seeking God first. And just like going to Costco without your membership card, have you ever tried to buy something from Costco without a membership card? I did one time, so learn from my mistake. As uh, I'm the senior advisor at the school I teach, so I had to go to Costco and get some senior supplies for the graduation, like flowers. And so that was the one day a year before I had a membership, I could go into Costco. It's like the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. I get one chance to go into Costco per year. And it's so exciting because there is you can't get in without the membership. And we didn't have the membership at the time. One time we tried buying something like a bag of chips or something. And we didn't know the rule about, we didn't know you had to have a card. We thought we're already in there. Hey, let's buy something. Can we scan your card? We don't have a card. Then you can't buy anything. You can't buy anything from Costco without the membership. And you can't get things from God without getting in the door, so to speak. You can't get things from God unless we're reconciled to Him. Unless He's declared you righteous in His sight. Or if He's declared you justified in His eyes. And that's what we're talking about in Romans, the idea of justification. You can't get the things in the store from God without getting in there in the first place. And so the problem is we often seek blessings without first seeking Jesus. And just again, just like there's things we need from Costco, there's things we need from God, but we can't get those without the membership, so to speak. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the door. And so there's a pretty good analogy. He's the door. He says he's the door. So if 
We connect this with Costco. We're, gonna, we're almost done with Costco. But he's, it's, he says he's the door. It's like he pays the membership to get in, and which is pretty good. But there still be problems. But it's more than that. It's also everything inside is free as well. If that's the case, I don't care how disgusting Costco is. I don't care that there's no floor or that you got to wait in line forever. If everything in there is free and it's free to get in, I'm all set. Yeah, I love Costco at that point. And Jesus says, I am the door. And enter through the, enter the sheepfold through the door, Jesus, and all things will be added to you. So you have to enter in the door first before you can get the things from God that a lot of times we focus on. Rather than focusing on Him, we focus on those blessings that we want or that we need and try to get them without going through the door, Jesus. And there's two ways to get into the Costco, air quotes, of heaven, is either Jesus paying the price to get in or perfection. And we, none of us are perfect, so none of us get in that Costco of heaven. So we need to enter by Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And any of those things we a lot of times focus on from God, you know, fixing our marriage, healing, those types of things, we cannot even, we shouldn't seek to attain those until we've come in through the door. And then everything's paid for. Our entrance fee is paid, our bill is paid, everything is paid, and then we can receive those things in abundance. So in Romans, it, we're, we're looking at that idea about now we've gone through the door of salvation or justification. And how does that transform our lives? How does that change us? So in Romans, we're at chapter 5 now, and Paul has explained the gospel at the beginning. Then he spent about three chapters proving how we're all sinners and we have no chance of salvation by our own work because we're that sinful. And then for the past couple of chapters, he's been talking about the idea of justification. And Romans is kind of Paul's essay on salvation. And justification defined biblically as God declaring you legally righteous in his eyes. The justification is not an inward righteousness, it's a legal righteousness. So you are not perfect, and actually justification doesn't change you. I've compared it since we talked about justification. It's kind of like a marriage. It's a legal standing. It doesn't change the love you have for someone. It can lead to more love. And justification is kind of like that, where God, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done, looks at you as being righteous, even though you are not. It's a legal declaration. And so... Paul is writing about this in Romans, this idea of justification and how that works. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the idea of justification from God's perspective. Last week, it was kind of like justification from our perspective. Now, this week is, what are the results of justification? What happens to us after God has declared us legally righteous by grace? That's his unmerited favor on your life through faith in Jesus. And so how can our lives be transformed by Jesus? How can our lives be transformed by justification, by grace, through faith in Jesus? That's the big idea. So it's because Jesus has secured our justification, we need to look vertically, up and down, in all areas of our lives, not horizontally. Shouldn't do it the other way. Okay, uh, Okay, never mind. Okay, let's go on. So let me explain what I mean by that. So horizontally looking for things is looking outward and inward, looking to other people for whatever, for whatever you think you need, or looking inwardly for whatever you think you need. That's horizontal. It's straight across. Vertically is looking to Jesus, looking to God for the things we need. So we're going to look at this idea of horizontal versus vertical tonight 
as we read through Romans and answering these questions. How are, how are our lives transformed by justification through faith in Jesus when we look vertically? So this is about the transformation that takes place because of what Jesus has done when we accept that. And uh, it's awesome. So we're in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we'll be studying. And looking at this difference of horizontally seeking things versus vertically. So first of all, horizontally, we're at war with God. But vertically, because of Jesus, we are at peace with God. So this is what it says in verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 5. It says, Therefore, having been justified, and that means declared righteous, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Horizontally, we're at war with God. Vertically, because of Jesus, we have peace with God. And there's an important word in there. It's peace with God. It says you're not peace of God. Peace of God is something different. That's like inner peace that we're connected with God and we're declared innocent of our sins. This is peace with God. And that's more like the idea, the Jewish idea of shalom, like completeness, wholeness, perfection. We're at peace with God. And we seek that peace with God horizontally in a lot of different ways, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, religious, or non-religious. We, we look to make peace with whatever God we worship horizontally, if it's not with Jesus. So, for example, like meditation, that's a horizontal seeking peace with God, where you dig in yourself, try to figure out yourself, connect with the divine spirit within you. Horizontally, we seek self-help. We look for someone to tell us that we're okay, that it's not your fault, that you can change your life. We seek horizontal peace. It's some, it's things like environmentalism. We horizontally seek by doing enough good things to save the earth that we can be declared just by the God of the earth. Sometimes just ignorance, just trying to ignore the problem and look horizontally for people to affirm us. It can be with religious practices and looking horizontally what other people are doing, what the traditions are, following those, and then you think you have peace with God. Or a big one is approval from others. And we look horizontally to other people to tell us, hey, you're doing a good job. You're, you are righteous pretty much. I mean, you, you do what you're supposed to be doing. We look for that and then we think that gives us peace with God because horizontally something is telling us that. Whether it's other people doing it or ourselves when we get that sort of inflated sense of ourselves. In reality, we don't have peace with God horizontally. We have war. And it's not just a passive thing where we're against God. It's active rebellion. It's war. Warring against God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So there's not a neutral position. You either at peace with God or at war with God, and you cannot be at peace with God through horizontal methods by looking to others or looking to yourself to do it you need to look vertically to jesus so how do we war how does this play itself out in a practical sense it says earlier in romans that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of god is manifest in them so we war against god horizontally by suppressing that truth and this is me before i was a christian this is anyone who's not a christian anyone who who doesn't believe in god is kind of a similar thing Suppressing the truth, putting a forcible end to. And when I, before I was a Christian, when I was an atheist, 
or even an anti-theist, I was against it all, I had a million reasons why there's no God, quote-unquote. I had a whole bunch of excuses that would say, God can't be real because this, God can't be real because that. That's suppressing the truth about God. That's being at war with God. And the proof of that is ask anyone who doesn't believe. They'll tell you tons of reasons why God can't be true because they're at war with Him. They're suppressing the truth to forcibly put an end to it. And that's me. And there's also the famous magician, Penn Teller, who's an atheist as well. And I, I love his magic tricks. He, you know, he does a good job magic trick-wise. He's a famous magician from Vegas who's an atheist. And, and he says, just for an example, his re, one of his reasons why he doesn't believe in God is he says if the whole world started over again, religion would be completely different than it is today. But if the whole world started over, science would be exactly the same. And then, you know, okay, Penn Teller, you b- believe that. But I think that's a pretty big war statement suppressing the truth to say, I don't believe in God because hypothetically, if the world started over, I think religion will be completely different. And that's a suppression of the truth. That's being at war with God. And that's where all of us were before we found our vertical peace with Him. If you don't know Jesus, you're in a war with Him. And that's why you're trying so hard not to believe in Him. That's why you have all these excuses why it can't be true. But for the most part, I've never read the Bible for yourself to see if they're true. Like a little kid who just thinks peas are gross because they're green. There's a lot of times we think we have biblical knowledge because that was me. I thought I understood these things, but I had never read the Bible at any length. I've picked out verses here and there, but I didn't understand. But Christians, when you look horizontally for approval, horizontally for peace with God, whether it's from other people or whether it's looking in yourself to find that approval, you're looking for a peace you already have through Jesus. Jesus already gave us that peace with God. That's why looking vertically is where we should look for a peace with God. And that's how we get that peace is through Jesus. Jesus gives us that peace with God. Biblically, there's this concept of propitiation. It's a fancy word, but that was a sacrifice that, that they made to remove God's wrath from people. And the Bible says Jesus is our propitiation. That before you know Jesus, you're under God's wrath, His hatred of sin. But Jesus' death takes that away. It takes away His wrath from you. But there's another concept about this we don't think about as often. And that's our wrath toward God. And a lot of times people kind of bristle at this, the idea of God's wrath. Isn't God a loving God? We also have wrath against God before we have peace with Him. And this idea that we have peace with God vertically because of Jesus is kind of like our propitiation for God. That remo- Jesus also removes our wrath we have towards God. All the hatred we had toward God, all the animosity, all the bad feelings. Jesus removes that when we look to Him vertically because He's achieved that peace. You don't have to try harder to be at peace with God. It's, it's kind of like if you had two, two kids and one is a big one and one is a little one. And the little one's a jerk. And he's always picking on the big kid. And he's just swinging, trying to punch the big kid. And the big kid's just holding his arm out, and the little kid can't reach him. You know that picture? And the big kid's saying, hey man, just chill. We have no beef. And that's us swinging against God. It's, it's Jesus tells Paul when he appears to him in the vision, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I love that. I looked up what a goad is. And what? And it's a stick they would use to drive cattle. And that's what it is to be at war with God. You're kicking against that stick. It's trying to drive you in a certain direction. You're trying to fight against it. And cows... 
generally aren't that good at it. They usually do what they tell you. I worked on a ranch for two months, so I, I know what I'm talking about as far as cows. Hey, and even when I was a little kid, the cows are scared of people for the most part, unless you have a bull. You mess with the bull, you get the horns. Bender. Hey, uh, so and that's what it's like to be at war with God when Jesus has already achieved that peace. We don't need to look horizontally to other people to affirm us. We don't need to look inwardly to tell us how we are right, how we're justified, how we're righteous. God has already done that vertically because of what Jesus has done. He's already declared you righteous. You just have to believe that. And the result of that peace is what it says in verse 2. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word access is in the Greek, a word you would use when someone brings you into the throne room of a king. And that's what the idea is. Because we have peace with God, we have access to God's throne room. It's like someone is bringing us into his throne room to stand before him, into this grace in which we stand. I read a story on the internet. That's where I read all my stories. And it's a story of a Union soldier in the Civil War. And he wanted to meet with Abraham Lincoln really badly. And he went to Washington, D.C. to meet with Abraham Lincoln. But he's president. There's a war going on at the time. And so Abraham Lincoln was too busy to visit with this soldier. So the soldier leaves the White House and sits on a bench in a park nearby. You know, very sad. He really wanted to meet the president. And the little boy comes up to him and asks him why he's so sad. And he said, well, I wanted to meet with the president. I came all the way here to see him. The little boy says, oh, I can take you to him. Follow me. And the soldier is very confused. How could this little boy do it? So the little boy leads him through the White House, takes him to Abraham Lincoln and says, hey, dad, this soldier was trying to talk to you. And that's if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Hey, we have access into the throne room of God in this grace in which we stand because the sun brings us there. We have vertical peace with God that we don't need to fight. So if you look horizontally for peace with God, which we all do, and whether it's in yourself or looking for others to validate you, you'll never find it. Vertically, you already do have it. And this is a transforming grace. This is what changes our lives as Christians. Grace, the Holy Spirit, changes us. And going back, this is the last time I'll mention Costco, I think. It's like going to Costco, your membership is paid, all the items are paid, and if you're still at war with God, it's like you're still trying to pay, pay for what's already been bought. He, your peace with God has already been purchased if you look to Jesus for it. So we have peace. We're at war with God horizontally. We have peace with God vertically. Secondly, horizontally, we are transformed. Wait, let me start over. We are transformed by grace. No, let me just forget all that. Let's just say this. Horizontally, we're disappointed in our tribulations. And vertically, because of Jesus, we have hope in our tribulations. That's the second way we are transformed by grace. So let's start with uh, verses 3 through 5, chapter 5 of Romans. Read that. It says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And horizontally, when we look to others, we look to ourselves, we're disappointed in our tribulations, like it says. Vertically, we have hope in our trials. In verse 5, it says, This hope does not disappoint. So what is 
disappointing hope? What is the hope that disappoints? And that's the hope we have horizontally in ourselves or the hope we have in others. It'll always disappoint. It will always run out. And the Bible teaches continually throughout it a very difficult concept about tribulations, about the tough seasons in our life. It always says things like right here, we rejoice in our tribulations. That is really hard when we're actually in it, but the Bible always teaches to rejoice in our tribulations because we have a hope that does not run out. And that's what it says here. Vertically, we have a hope that does not disappoint. In First uh, Kings in the Bible, there's a story of a widow and the prophet Elijah. And there had been a drought in Israel for years and years, and everyone was in desperate times. And Elijah goes to the house of the widow. God told him to go to this widow's house and talk to her. And he goes there, and she's gathering sticks outside the house. And it's been a drought, very hard time for them. And the prophet Elijah asked the widow for some water. And the widow goes to get the water. And as she's leaving, he also asks for a morsel of bread, it says. Just a little piece of bread. And the widow says that she doesn't have any bread. She only has flour. She only has a little bit of oil. And what she was doing was she was gathering sticks to use that last little bit of flour and that last little bit of oil to make a last meal for her and her son before they died. They were at their very end. There had been a drought. And she was going, she was picking up the sticks. I mean, imagine that as a widow, your husband has already died. You're at the end of your rope. It's you and your son. And you have, are down to your last bit of food. And some stranger comes and asks for a cup of water and a little bit of bread. And so she says again that they don't have enough. She was going to use that last bit. But then, uh, Elijah says, no, use that last little bit and make, make a cake for you and your son and for me. And God won't let it run out. And so she made it, and the oil and flour would never run out. It was a kind of picture like when Jesus is breaking the bread, when he feeds 5,000 people, it just multiplies, it continues. The oil and flour never runs out. And so the widow on her own, with her own horizontal hope, looking at her situation, looking at what she had inside her, her oil and flour was going to run out. It was at its very end. But vertically, because of God, it never ran out. It continued, and she survived, and uh, even her son survived, and it produces. So God took what was there and made it last abundantly. And when we look inwardly for hope, it's going to run out. When we look to others for hope, it's going to run out. And you might have hope now, but will that hope last when your spouse commits adultery? Will it last when your spouse wants to divorce you? Will your hope last when the doctor says that it's cancer? Will it last when you lose your house and everything you own? Will your hope last when your child dies? Will it last when your addiction has pushed everybody away? Will it last when you've tried and tried and tried to stop doing the thing you hate, but you just can't? Your flour and oil is going to run out. You only have a limited supply. It's going to run out. And it's not if, but when. Your hope in yourself is going to run out, and your hope in others is going to run out. So in tribulation... We look vertically because that hope doesn't disappoint. That increases the flower so it never runs out. That hope does not run out. And it says that that tribulation, looking vertically to a hope that will never disappoint, produces perseverance, endurance. You maybe get better at withstanding it. Then it says perseverance produces character. And so God develops qualities in you that you never thought you had 
ways to get through it that you never thought were possible. And the Bible talks about this picture of it that, that I love, that gold has imperfections in it, and when you heat it up, the imperfections rise to the surface of the gold, and then you skim it off, and the gold is more pure. And that's the picture in the Bible of going through tribulations. And all those imperfections will rise up, and it'll be skimmed away, and you'll have a hope that does not disappoint. And so then it says, character produces hope. And that's a confident expectation, a hope that does not disappoint. The flour will never run out, and the oil will never run out. And why? Because the love of God has been poured out abundantly in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That's what it says in verse 5. God has poured out abundantly in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And when we look vertically in our tough seasons of life and our tribulations, we look to Jesus. And we see us becoming more like Jesus because Jesus is the suffering servant is a title for him in the book of Isaiah. And the Bible never says to read, it doesn't say rejoice after our tribulations. It always says rejoice in the tribulations. And that, that's very difficult. How does that work? And it's easy for me to say this now. I'm in a pretty good season of my life. I don't know where everyone is at, but it's really easy to stand up here and say it during a good season. It's much more harder to practice it when things are difficult, when your hope is running out. But this, this is helpful for me. Suffering helps you understand Jesus more because He suffered. And whenever you go through suffering, it reveals something about Jesus you might not have seen before. So if your spouse has committed adultery, it helps you understand better when God speaks of His people committing adultery on Him by worshiping other gods. You understand that in a way someone who that hasn't happened to can never understand. You understand God's perspective on that. If you've had a child who's died or a child who's miscarried, yeah, you understand more deeply what it meant for God to sacrifice His Son, for Him to see His Son dying. You understand that in a way that no, someone who's not been through that could never understand. And you, if you've lost everything you own, if you've lost all your possessions, you understand more deeply when the Bible says that Jesus emptied Himself of all of His glory from the throne room in heaven being praised eternally, say, the angel saying, Holy, 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 And he left that, put that aside, emptied himself to come to this earth to be mocked and spit on and die for us. If you've lost everything you have, you can better understand what Jesus did when he went through that. Not perfectly, but you can better understand. If you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness and you know your time is short, you understand better the torment Jesus went through the night before he died when he was praying to his father and in such turmoil that he's sweating drops of blood. You understand that better than someone who hasn't gone through that. If your best friend, someone that you trust dearly, betrays you, you understand better Jesus' heartache when his friends betrayed him. When one of his friends turned him over to the authorities to have him killed, and his other 11 friends all scattered and denied him. If you've been betrayed, you understand Jesus better when that happens to him. So the sad fact about life is you are going to suffer. The Bible never says you are not going to even being a Christian, even being justified in God's eyes, you are always going to suffer. So why not use it and look vertically and see how your suffering is transforming you more like our Lord and Savior Jesus. And our experiences in those difficult seasons help us to identify with Jesus, the suffering servant. But again, how can we do that? It's very difficult. 
And so let's go on in Romans to verse 6. It says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And we can look to Jesus in our suffering because when we were without strength, Jesus died for the ungodly. When we were at the bottom of our tribulation, Jesus died for the ungodly, not the righteous, not the people who thought they had it all figured out, not the people who weren't going through difficult times. He died for the ungodly in the bottom of their tribulations. He didn't die for the people that were looking horizontally to be affirmed and other people to solve their problems and for them to look inwardly and solve their own problems. It's people looking vertically to Him. And then verse 7, it says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Hey, who would you die for? Or even better, who would you send your kids to die for? Hey, that's what Jesus did. And it says, we might, under the direst of circumstances, we might die for someone who's a good person. But God sent His Son to die for us when we were against Him when we were seeking righteousness horizontally from others, from other false gods, from ourselves, He sent His Son to die for us in that situation. And then verse 8 kind of puts it all together. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. If you don't know this, you should memorize it. It says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, that's the phrase that I love. While we were still sinners... Hey, we don't need to do anything. Hey, Jesus saved me about three years ago, and I didn't need to like make it up to him. All the time I spent bad-mouthing him, all the time I spent saying he's not God, all the time I spent telling people, why are you believing in this? It's dumb. He didn't make me make that up for him. He died for me while I was doing that. And he died for me while I continue to sin and while I continue to fail. He still died for me. And then so vertically we can have hope in our tribulations because we don't need to clean anything up before coming to Him. We'll make this verse personal. Hey, see yourself in it. But God demonstrates His own love toward you and that while you were still looking at porn, hey, while you were still abusing your spouse, while you were still getting high, while you were still thinking you don't need God, while you were still gossiping about your coworkers, while you were still cheating on your spouse, while you are still tearing people down with your words, while you are still trying to justify yourself with your actions, while you are still doing whatever it is you do that you know you shouldn't be doing, Christ died for you while you were doing those things, not after you did them. While you're doing it, Christ died for us. So when we look horizontally to ourselves or to others in the tribulation of our lives, that hope is always going to disappoint. It's finite. It'll disappoint you. Even if it's not now, at some point it will. But when we look vertically to what Jesus did on the cross, and that He died while we were still sinners, and that He resurrected, then we can rejoice with an eternal hope. And we see our suffering turn us more into like our suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus. And finally, third point, horizontally we're under God's wrath, and vertically because of Jesus we're reconciled with God. This is the third way we're transformed by the grace we've received. So verses 9 through 11 say, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. 
And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Horizontally, we're under God's wrath. And when we're looking to make ourselves righteous with God by the things we do or by self-affirming us, we're under God's wrath. And that's His eternal detestation of sin. Is God made us perfect and we chose sin. And you can work so hard and look horizontally to ignore that. You can try to check all the boxes and do all the right things to ignore the fact that we're under God's wrath without Jesus. But the fact remains, you're eternally destined for hell if you never look to Jesus for reconciliation. You are not reconciled to God until you look vertically to Jesus and His work on this earth, living a perfect life and dying the sacrificial death and resurrecting. And the idea in these verses is that if Jesus died for you well, while you were under God's wrath, how much more is He going to bless you now that you've been reconciled to Him? If Jesus paid the ultimate price to die for you while you were still a sinner, while I was still a sinner, and now that we've been reconciled to God, how much more abundantly is He going to bless us? And in verse 10, it says, as this phrase, having been reconciled, in verse 11, it says, received reconciliation. And this is a mini English lesson. I'm an English teacher. A passive verb. That means it's a verb not that you do. It's not an action you do. It's an action that was done to you. And so we do not achieve the reconciliation. We receive the reconciliation. We do not become reconciled with God. We have been reconciled with God. And from a human perspective, we understand reconciliation. It biblically, particularly in the book of Hosea, but we see it throughout the entire Old Testament, that God compares His nation, the Israelites, that they were supposed to worship Him and Him alone. When they go to worship other gods, there's this picture that it's like adultery, that they were supposed to be serving the true God, the one God, the God we serve, but they were looking, they served other gods instead of the God they're covenantally in relationship with. So that's why he always uses this picture of adultery. Just like in a marriage, when we are supposed to devote ourselves to one person. And then when we commit adultery, we break that covenant. We break the promise that we made before God that we would not do that. That's why God uses this image of reconciliation or this image of adultery in the Bible. And so that we understand that when we talk from a human perspective with adultery. Let's say your spouse has betrayed you. They've broken a rule that should never be broken. They've they've sought and attained sexual gratification from someone besides you. Like the ultimate disrespect. But then let's say that the spouse comes to knowledge of something, repents, completely changes from that and says, I don't, you know, I don't know what was happening. Takes full responsibility, completely apologizes for it and repents for it. it. Then, your spouse maybe at that point would ask for reconciliation. And it only takes one to repent, but it takes two to reconcile. And it takes two people to make the relationship back to what it used to be as much as it can be. And so when you're talking about reconciliation with God, it takes us to repent, and He's provided the reconciliation. And we need to repent and accept that, because it takes both of us to do that. And not that we did any of the work. Jesus provided the opportunity. We just have to accept that gift and realize that we've already been reconciled. In this picture of adultery, God is the faithful spouse, 
the spouse who was betrayed. And he's providing the reconciliation when it should be the one who did the sin. But he's provided that reconciliation if we look vertically to him. And so look carefully in verse 10. It says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Okay, that's how we were reconciled, through the death of his son. And an, an important thing to remember about our salvation, about reconciliation with God, is he paid the price. And there's no other belief system, religion, any sort of philosophy that says God paid the price for your justification. It's always you pay the price horizontally. You work hard enough, you be a good enough person, you get enough people to call you righteous and holy. That's everything else. Christianity says God paid the price through the death of his son, and he's provided the reconciliation. So in closing, and we're looking at how grace transforms us after we've been justified, how that leads to transformation in our life. And only Jesus can provide this transformation. There's a well-known section of scripture from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55. It says this, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And that verse is quoted a lot about God's word never returning void. It will always accomplish the purpose that it was sent for. But we don't a lot of times ask, well, what's the purpose that God's word was sent for? So it continues in Isaiah saying, Instead of the thorn... Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And so God's word, the Bible, also the word of God is Jesus, is sent and it never returns void. It always achieves its purposes. And the purpose of that is not information. The purpose is transformation to change us. The Word of God, the Bible, Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, is not to provide us with information, but to provide us with transformation. So in this picture from Isaiah that talks about God's Word not returning void, it it says that there's thorns and briars. We have a bunch of goat's heads in our backyard, you know, sticky things that stick in your foot when you walk on them. And what happens when when rain falls on them? It, has, it talks about rain. You get bigger thorns and briars. But it says here, when the rain falls on those thorns and briars, when the word of God accomplishes what it was sent out for, not for information, but for transformation, it says that the thorns become cypress trees, not just bigger thorns. They completely change. It says that the briars become myrtle trees when the word of God falls on them, not just bigger briars, but an entirely new, beautiful creation that cannot be done by the natural course of events so when you're looking for peace look to jesus he already did the work and ended the war between you and god when you're looking for hope and tribulation look to jesus he is a hope that never disappoints when you're looking for reconciliation look to jesus he's already provided the reconciliation and knowing that knowing that we've received justification righteousness in god's eyes by grace, then we can do as it says in verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you first personally for the transformation you've done in my life. And I know it wasn't me. I know it was you, God, because I would just be a bigger thorn or a bigger briar if I tried to change myself horizontally. And thank you that you do that to people, as sinful as we are. And as much as we worship other gods instead of you, you still provide the rain. You still provide the transformation. And you provided your son to leave his glory and come to this earth and live a perfect life and die sacrificially so that we could be united with you, so that we could look vertically and have hope and be at peace and have reconciliation. God, I pray that for the Holy Spirit to just work in us and transform us in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.